over the, of my developing career, you started off with two units and three units, and then you start going into sixes and nines, and you go, great, I'm going to get bigger. Well, which way do you get bigger? More sites or, or more numbers of dwellings on the site? You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas, and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now, here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello and welcome to episode 21 of the Property Developer Podcast. It's great to have you with me. I trust you're doing well. I'm feeling good and have another great show for you with property developer Dave Bradley. Dave may be known to many of you without you actually realising it, but we will come to that shortly. Before we catch up with Dave, here's a quick project and news update. My two projects are moving along nicely at the moment. The 20 townhouse project is ticking along with not much to report. The first fix continues along the rear properties and the roof is going in along the front row. The weather is improving in Melbourne as we approach spring, so hopefully we can get some dry spells over the coming weeks and months and the builder can power through to completion. The new project is still in the town planning phase. The arborist has removed all the trees that needed to go and the land surveyor has just completed his surveys. So now it is over to the architect to develop up the drawings and prepare the town planning application which we are aiming to submit to council in about eight weeks' time. A bit of market news. If you're interested in the current state of the lending and finance market, I suggest you check out the Construction Finance Market Update released by former guest and construction finance specialist Dan Holden from Holden Capital. It is chock full of case studies and ideas on ways you can structure your next finance deal. Dan has also started a podcast about property developing called the Constructive Finance Podcast. So worth listening into, particularly if you operate around the Brisbane market. Head over to the Holden Capital website, which is holdencapital.com.au, and you should be able to find both the market report and the podcast pretty easily. I would also like to say thank you to all the people that have sent me emails recently, introducing themselves and thanking me for putting the show together. I'm very grateful for your messages and your support. I love to hear about the projects that other people are doing, so please email me through with any pictures or news about your developments. My email is justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com. And also thanks to Daniel from Strata Choice in Sydney, who recently visited Melbourne and took me to lunch so we could talk about developing. So, on to today's guest, someone I'm pretty excited to be bringing to you. Dave Bradley is known to many property investors as the partner of Steve McKnight, who wrote the very well-known book Zero to 130 Properties in Three and a Half Years, which I think may be Australia's highest-selling real estate book. Dave featured heavily in the book as Steve's partner at the time they started buying huge volumes of positive cash flow properties. Dave is now out on his own, has been for quite some time, and is focusing on property development, and he kindly shares some of the lessons he has learned along the way. Dave spoke at a small event I attended a few years back while I was learning how to develop property, and he shared a story about how he completed the Melbourne Ironman despite some serious setbacks along the way. And his message of committing yourself to doing whatever it takes to succeed really resonated with me. I took on board that message and have often repeated it to myself along the way, particularly when things aren't going exactly to plan. And since I started the podcast, he has been somebody I really wanted to speak with on the show, and I'm sure you'll enjoy this discussion. Dave shares plenty of gold that will help you take your business to the next level. It ended up being quite a long chat, so I have split the conversation in two, so tune in to the next episode to hear the second and concluding part of the discussion. We really cover quite a bit of territory in this part of the discussion, including how to grow your developing business and how to figure out which direction to take it, and also dealing with investors. Of course, I started off by asking Dave what food he would eat until he was sick. I, I, uh, I have this theory about food, as long as someone else cooks it, I'll eat it. So I don't care what it is. Yeah, I'll, so eat, I'll eat whatever. Not, a, not fussy. As long as I don't have to make it, I'll eat whatever you give me. <laughs> All right, Dave. Well, you're probably um, the only person that I've interviewed so far on the show who is a character in probably one of Australia's most well-known property investing books, which is the <laughs> not to 130 properties in three and a half years with Steve McKnight. Can you give us a bit of a background on how you got into property developing and what you're up to these days? Oh, wow, <laughs> I'll give you the uh, I'll give you the condensed the condensed version. 
Uh, Steve and I started an accounting practice way back in 1999. We met in the accounting practice we were working at in a couple of years before that, and we got to the point where we went, we can do it better than these gooses can. So we figured that what you do as accountants is you put your own name on the door. Our own name on the door didn't change anything, though, because we still were working for the man, even though that man was us. And we still didn't really like what we were doing, albeit Steve got to that point a little bit earlier than I did. So essentially, we just started buying houses. And uh, way back then, it was uh, the, the flavour of the month and the buzzwords were positive cash flow and a whole bunch of terms that uh, got, you know, got thrown around around the same time. Uh, we were pretty successful at it in that we managed to acquire a lot of real estate, as by the title uh, of the book. And I guess my, my investing career, if you like, evolved as markets evolved. So, you know, we, I would just buy houses just to rent. And then we sold those houses under vendor finance. And then next thing we knew, I had a house that needed renovating. So we learned how to renovate. And then we started cutting off backyards. And, you know, before you know it, that you're doing, you're, you're, you're building in the backyards, then you're looking for backyards, then you're building three houses, and then you're and you're building blocks of flats, and you know the last few things I've bought have been schools, and before you know it, you're going, wow, okay, this started out as a little idea, and it grew. And so my investing career, I think, started from very, very humble beginnings. I still remember 66 Marigold Street, Wendery, for $44,000. And... uh, Whatever that did as an investment, and I can tell you we've got time, we probably haven't got time to go through that as an investment. So the last one that I bought was a couple of weeks ago, which was, was for you know, just under $3 million. So, uh, yeah, an evolution, and uh, I've changed alongside as the market has changed. I'm conscious I haven't even answered your question there. I've just spoke. That's okay. We'll get, no, you, we'll get around to it. I'll tease out the details from you. So, so what was it that led you then into focusing on developing because that's where you're at at the moment yeah i think first of all uh, it's important to understand what is developing and i think uh for the purposes of listeners and purposes of you and anyone else who, who i talk to i come up with developing and i give it a definition of what is property developing that way i'm really clear on what it is that i'm actually doing so you understand my background and how i got started in property you understand why, why i define property developing so i got to the point i hated work absolutely hated going to work with a passion i remember going got to my probably my darkest moment was uh lying in bed one morning and I, and I said to my wife give me one good reason why i should go to work today and she said i can't think of one you know, other than the money and the wages and all that stuff you definitely and i went well if you can't think of one then i'm not going so i rang them up and i said i'm not coming in and then they said are you going to come in tomorrow i said well it's going to depend on how i'm feeling and then, then, then I, long story, I went into work the next day and everyone thought I'd been sick. And I went, no, I've not been sick. I just didn't want to come in. And it was very, it was more confronting for them than it, than it was for me. So I got to the point where I actually didn't like having to work for the man and, and do all these things. So for me, probably developing, just, just to quantum leap it, is, is making money from property without having to do the physical work. I like the idea of getting paid to do nothing, if that makes sense. It sounds terribly arrogant or what have you. But this notion of if you watch a reality TV show and some guy, you know, he's painting his own house and he's doing his own floor or whatever, he says, oh, I made $28,000. Yeah, but you just spent six weeks there. You didn't make $28,000 at all. I, I think is a is complete furphy that just doesn't, most people aren't going to have the same, A, the degree of that success or success in inverted commas, or, or, or secondly, that, that it's not going to put not enough money in the bank account to actually pay for life. So for me, it was actually making money without me being the one who had to physically do the graft. So property developing for me became that. Now, I'm guessing we're going to talk about construction and townhouses and stuff like that. So for me, things like uh, changing the, the usage of a piece of property is property developing. Cutting off a backyard is property developing. Get Buying a block of flats and making, say, 10 flats become one flat each, 10 individual flats versus one block of 10 is property developing. All those things were adding value to a property without me being the one who had to do all that. So if I wanted to subdivide a property, I'll get a surveyor out there and he would do most of the work. The lawyer would do most of the work at the title's office. It's not me out on the street trying to work out where the title boundaries are and that sort of stuff. Does that make sense? It does, but you... I think you're underselling your contribution to the uh, <laughs> management of a project with just a, a fraction. Uh, you, there is work to be done as a property developer, oh, maybe I, not physical work, but there's 
plenty to do. Ab- absolutely there is, but I want it to be away from me, being the one. Understand, when I was an accountant, so this is how I got started, I sold my time in six-minute increments. I had to account for every, every hour of every day uh, by every six-minute increments and then charge it to a client at the end of the day. And so I got to the point where I don't want to do that. I actually want to do what I want to do. And so, yeah, there's a commercial reality behind uh, some of this stuff, but it's not me selling six-minute increments of my time. So it, it couldn't be, whatever I did, couldn't be dependent upon me having to work that, those six minutes. Yeah, I remember also being at work, I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, a moment in time when I was working for somebody else and realising I needed to do something on my own eventually was when I had to write a brief to justify getting a pay rise of $1,500 a year, I think. (laughs) And it got knocked back. And I remember going home from work that night on the way home going, I have got to take charge of my life here because I don't want to be... So they get knocked back because of what you wrote or because it was never going to get approved in the first place? Because of budget constraints, just wasn't going to get up. So rather than your boss saying you are, no, budget constraints are never going to get up, we're going to send you on a wild goose chase and hope you actually don't do what it is that you're going to do anyway. Oh, there was just sort of going up the line of command, basically, and getting knocked back by someone more senior. But that was a point where I distinctly remember coming home from work that night thinking... Right, I've got to do something for myself here because if I want to give myself a fifteen hundred dollar raise, I want to be the person making that decision. Right. Not Unless if you wanted a fifteen grand raise, what you'd have had to do. Well, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, as a property developer, that is a decision that you can actually make. I'm in I want to make, make fifteen thousand dollars extra. So how am I going to do that? Mm. I'm going to charge three grand more per unit, or I'm going to get three grand less off the construction price. Things like that that you can actually Absolutely. control it. They kind of pale into comparison with fifteen hundred bucks. Well, the, 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 a lot of the arguments become an abundance discussion versus a scarcity discussion. So, the abundance for purposes what we're talking about is there's enough money to go around, and I, I believe that I'll be bathing in lots of it versus a scarcity, which is your former employer who's sort of saying, "No, well, budget says we can't afford fifteen hundred dollars." When an abundance would have said, "Give me the fifteen hundred bucks," and with that, we're going to create far more than fifteen hundred bucks. To, to benefit the organisation. I realise the organisation may not be set up to do that, but abundance mentality will create that being the case. And if you are an, are an abundance mentality type person, and property developers by the very nature are, by being an environment that's against that, it, it's counterproductive and counterintuitive in a lot of ways. Yeah, it is. So tell us about what some of the projects that you're working on now as a developer. Uh, I'm doing uh, two main two main things at the moment. I'm doing a lot of townhouses uh, that's there, which has become like a, a, a bread and butter. And I'm also doing a lot of land subdivision uh, for a, a variety of reasons. One, it became bigger, and so as I as I tend to attract people with bigger paychecks, it was it was easier to deploy money and, and investors easier to deploy that. And if I looked at it in a macro sense as well, it became a bit of a hedge against uh, if you thought the market was going to was going to tank and, and correct, because I'm fundamentally selling land packages which are in growth areas which are affordable housing. And so, if you're worried about the price of housing in the suburban year because the prices have gone from whatever they are to you know, in some cases they've doubled in the space of five years. And you worry about affordability of housing, then I've gone to I've, I've tried to hedge against that by going to areas where their houses, or the house and lands in this case, are affordable, and I'll sell the land, and these people will go and find a builder who will go and build them again. So I'm typically doing two things: uh, the land and the townhouses. The land is a, is a long term play; it can be anywhere from you know three years to sort of seven or eight years, depending upon where how the land zone and, and so forth. And the townhouses can be less than twelve months, uh, depending on what you buy and how you go with permits and construction and sales. So. Sort of like a two uh, two tier strategy, if you like. Uh, interesting. It requires different disciplines, different mindsets that I've found after going through both of those. And what's the difference? Uh, you need patience for the longer term strategy, which is I've tried to learn patience, which is when you want it now, 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 uh, yeah. and you're a go, go, go sort of person. You know, having a budget blowout of two months over five years is sort of it's okay. <laughs> Uh, and so when you chop and change in roles on a, on a daily basis, depending on who you're speaking to, you've got to sort of remember that uh, whether you're in the now game or you're in the, or in the, on a longer-term burn game. And land subdivision, what sort of number of lots are we talking about there? Uh, if you're there, round numbers, there'll be 100 at a time. Mm. Okay, so not insignificant. 
when you look at it like that, no, but it just seemed like another one we did and it was the right thing to do at the time, so I just kept adding to them. So I've never really done the numbers about what I'm currently developing. I probably should have. I should have done my homework, I suppose. <laughs> but um, it's, it's interesting, though. You say that as an accountant. That it's not a number that really uh, that, that really gets me going or anything like that. I, I do this business for one reason and one reason only, and it might alarm some people. It might actually you know, make some people spit their cornflakes out as they're, as they're listening to this, but there's a term I use called commercial reality. Right now in this country, there's a housing crisis, and I couldn't give a toss about it. It's not my problem. I'm doing this to make money for the benefit of my family and me. That's why I'm doing this. And so I'm doing whatever it is. So I'm more interested in those numbers about how I'm going as far as the financial betterment of my situation rather than the number of houses that I'm developing. I don't care if I develop uh, one, one lot of land into 100 lots or, or I'll buy that one lot of land and someone can pay me you know, a million dollars more. And if it works for me in a financial sense, I'll, I'll keep moving. It doesn't really, really phase me. So the number of lots itself... Is, is sort of nice and you can talk about community building and you know all that sort of stuff and I know you probably asked me later about legacies and, and that sort of stuff right now my short term aim is commercial realities rather than legacies but having said that I do realise that there are people when I build a house there are people who are actually going to live in that house and so you want to make it the best house that you actually can but uh, it's never really worried me the number of houses that I've building maybe that comes from a, a time when I've bought houses with Steve when we used to buy them as regularly as buying sandwiches. So we, it, it, the number was just another number. The number was a big number, whichever way you looked at it, rather than just, you know, maybe you didn't give it, I didn't give that enough credit at the time, maybe I still don't. And then the town, sorry, the townhouse start, townhouse development? Uh, I'm looking, always looking at number of sites. So I've got, uh, I've probably got about uh, anywhere. Uh, so I've probably got maybe a dozen sites on the go any one time. Yeah, and what's what are you sort of doing on those? Oh, typically just just normal townhouses, so anywhere from uh, two big houses up to you know more than two houses, sixteen, whatever whatever is is there. It's interesting, you know, talking to you off off camera, off microphone before when you're doing a, a twenty, you know, you ask the question: Is twenty? You're better off doing one times twenty, or two times ten, or four times five, and it's this number again. I'm going. I don't really care about that number. It comes down to the risks associated with construction, the risks associated with finance, the risks associated with selling, and my capital deployment and my management of my capital deployment is the is the number that, that I try and try and work on. So at the end of the time, you buying a property for putting twenty on there, it's the actual purchase of that property and the financing of that property takes the same amount of time, whether it was twenty lots or it was two lots. It's still the same the conveyancer still charges the same amount of money, generally. For the to, to transact, the bit in the middle is a bit more. I, I, I get that. There's a bit, <laughs> bit, bit more in the middle, but it's the it's trying to as you as you, as you graduate or as you grow into making the business that becomes a little bit uh, more complex or there's a there's a little bit more on it. And so well, we can talk about that if you like, because I've noticed over the, of my developing career, you started off with two units and three units, and then you start going into sixes and nines, and you go, great, I'm going to get bigger. Well, which way do you get bigger? More sites or, or more numbers of dwellings? on the site or you come a bit closer into town where the numbers are a bit bigger or all three and so there's a there's an evolution in your thought process about when does that actually happen so you know as much as i i'm flipping about it there is a skill i think in what i try and do about i'm just trying to understand what is it that people actually want in housing because ultimately you are selling a product uh, far brainier people, far richer people than me uh, have given up. So you listen to a guy called Harry Triggerboff, who's like the wealthiest property investor in the country, and he talks about he wants housing to be affordable. So if you make your product affordable, then the entire market can buy your product. So there's no point. Just because house prices go up doesn't mean you're going to make more money. You actually want to keep finding yourself in a situation where more people actually want your product, whether you're selling houses in, in Moralbuck and one of 20, or you're selling... Uh, you know, acreage that I've cut up into laps and lots. You want it to be as affordable for as many people as you possibly can, because then you have this business that just that just generates. And so, I've, a little bit of my thought process goes into: Should I be selling uh, million dollar plus houses where the market's in certain suburbs, or should I be selling five hundred thousand dollar houses in in other suburbs? Which is the the better, in inverted commas, development to be doing? And in the end, I don't think there's never there's never really an answer. Flip me, I'll say do both and see which one which which one got you off better or something. I suppose, but commercially, you're never going to do that, or you maybe can't do that because of limitations behind capital and finance. However, in the time, they're all decisions that you actually have to make when you decide to once you want to jump into the development game. 
So then let's talk about how you then decided which way to go, whether you moved closer into the city or whether you did more projects. It sounds like you might have actually done a bit of all of them. All three. <laughs> no, it, it, it's, it's really hard because it, I'll tell you what I did and I'll try and tell you then what, what, uh, what I find other people actually do. So what I did is I knew I had to come closer into the city. So I started in similar areas, similar areas to you, outer east, the suburbs of Melbourne is where I started doing, doing developing. And I went, wow, I did all that work and I made X. Let's call it $100,000. I don't really know what the number was. I could go back and look at each development I could tell you. He went, wow, if I did the same deal, and over the passage of time, I would track certain properties. You went, if I did the same deal, so the opportunity cost of me buying property A was to buy property B, I could have, you can track what I, what I would have done. So you might have worked out, you might have made $100,000 worth of property that you bought. But if you'd have gone a separate way and bought property B, and you never know because you didn't do it, you'd have made, you went, oh, I'd have bought more, I'd have made more. And so there are times that you went, I sort of need to come in. And this is the dilemma because you go, but everything I know is out there. So I'm now, I'm an area expert, calling the, the term, in a particular area. But three suburbs away, I'm not an area expert. So it begs the question, how many areas, how many suburbs can you be an area expert in? Now, it's not an unlimited number. There's, there might be two or three or four. Or it might be 10, depending on how smart you are and how much time and how much capacity you've got. But there's a limited number that you can actually have. And so you, most people struggle because it's the, yeah, I've got to go to this, this, this property over here. I don't really know anything about it or what I can do with the land or, or what the selling prices are ultimately or how I'm going to get a builder or any of those questions. But my gut feel says to do it or I can stay with what I tried and trusted know and then I'm going to make the $100,000 to use the, the, the same example. And it's similar similar discussion, if you like, as to why you end up getting out of a job. We spoke about that that early going, I know I need to do this. I can't, I can't put my finger on any one f- factor except I know I need to move closer in. So I moved closer in. And the problem with moving closer in, and I'm talking in a geographical sense as far as suburbs, is that you put your hand up at auction or you go and buy a property and it costs more money. And you're going, wow, this property is actually worth more than my family home. And all I'm going to do is knock it down and build something else. I better not tell my wife about that. <laughs> She's going to have kids. So you do that, and of course, then not only is the property uh, more expensive, but the, the amount of capital you require is more. The stamp duty is more. The funding cost is more. The loan you sign for is more. And if you, you know, it's all right. We say, oh, I just signed for a loan of three million. Yeah, but if you think, if you say that number slowly, three million dollars, you go, wow, that's a lot of money. But we become a little bit flippant about. We just throw numbers around. Our point one is a hundred thousand dollars, and so it's interesting, just as a, as a diversion, when people talk up to a million dollars. They will when they'll say, well, let's sell for. They'll say, oh, 550 to 600, 650 to 700. You get past a million, and it'll be, we all of a sudden we go from $50,000 increments to $100,000 increments. We go, oh, yeah, one to 1.1, 1.2. And you get past a certain number, it's, oh, yeah, three to three and a half. We're just dropping half a million just just, <laughs> just in this, like as a, as a rounding area. It's, just, it's, quite, it's quite fascinating as a, as a psychological study about. Uh, what people do. No one says, oh, it's going to go for three to three million and 50,000, <laughs> which is as valid thing as anything else. I've lost my train of thought now. We were just on a, on a tangent. Uh, Moving closer in. And- oh, closer in. So I, I bought properties. So I, so I bought properties that were in, in postcodes closer into town. And as you went through this cycle, you went, wow, when the market moved, man, the market moved. Your rounding errors became these big rounding errors in your favour. So all of a sudden, the, the, the market just gave you, you know, X hundred thousand dollars. And you went, wow, how cool is this? And you went, so I have to develop on this. So I have to get out of these areas. I have to stay, stay in here. And I have to do it such that the affordability is taken out of the play because I have to go and buy these things. In the last... All markets change all the time. In the last, I don't know, three years, two years, I know you're going to ask me questions about five-year horizons and 10-year horizons and all this sort of stuff. I'm looking at about a 60-day horizon. It's there because the market can change real quickly all all the time. And so you've seen properties that would sell for a million dollars and would come back on the market three months later for one and a half. And you might go, oh, that's only 500,000. You're going, no, 500,000. Do you remember remember when you had to work for $500,000? Like I, when I first started working for myself, 
And I, I had this mentality and still have it today. I was earning $50,000 a year as an accountant, albeit you know, a couple of years ago now. I'm sure their, their wages have increased significantly since then. I, still, I would think in terms of 50 grand. So for every 50 grand that I would get out of a, out of a deal, I was buying myself one year. So under that same analogy of one million and one and a half million, and we're ignoring costs and all that sort of stuff like that, that just bought you 10 years. Now, I don't know how long I'm going to live for, but you start going, I bought a lot of, I bought enough years that it's probably going to see me out in that sense. And you went, oh, phew, that's okay. You know, nice sunny day today, we can go outside and, and do stuff. It, it's a different mentality than being, have to get up and go to work in the morning. So... This is why you generally see with a smile on my face because despite my worst days of property developer, generally it beats my, <laughs> any day I had as an accountant or working for the man. You should get a bumper sticker put up and maybe <laughs> put it on your car. The problem is, is where do I drive with that? Because <laughs> that, that would mean I have to go into peak hour traffic to drive with it. I don't want to go into peak hour traffic. I'll you make sure I don't. People bumping, yeah. bumping into How you. How dare you? Yeah. Bang. <laughs> um, there's a couple of things I want to go back and, um, and sort of cover a bit more with you, but... Please, sure. So, um, now that you've got multiple projects on the go, what have you had to put in place to enable you to be able to do five, six, seven projects now and really, really leverage your time? A big secret. <laughs> Trust people. Yeah. So, so I've got to do my stuff as far as capital, and capital deployment is the case. What it comes to is, is, is trusting that your builder will do the right thing, trusting that your finance guy will do the right thing, trusting that the conveyancer will do the right thing. It's trusting that everyone will do what it is that they're supposed to do. So my role has become as a general manager of sorts to make sure that everyone in the team is doing what it is that they're supposed to do. So there's, a, there's a, a tendency for people to want to micromanage every single function that there is. So I'll give you an example. I've got townhouse sites, and uh, I don't even go on the site. I'll drive past the site, but I won't go on the site for a couple of reasons. One, what am I actually going to do on the site? Like, you know, I used to have this theory that they were going to, if I go on site, you know, there's some chippy there. He's going to say, hey, Dave, can we, can we ask you a question about what am I going to do? I can, I'm not a carpenter. I don't know what to do. You know, I don't have any tools. There's this notion that I believe that you can pay someone to do almost every job. It, it, it applies equally at home and in other facets of your life as it does in, in a building or a construction or a development business as well. So what would I want to go on site for? In the end, they might want to talk to me. There's a whole bunch of things that, that could happen. But if, but I, my curiosity by being on site, like I'm not going to be able to look at a wall and know whether it's the proper wall done. The builder's going to tell me and the building surveyor is going to tell him whether it's a, whether, whether the wall's been done properly. So my conversation will be to trust the builder that he's got the right guys on, on site. And so I can check that. So I can say, Mr. Builder, when do you think you'll actually reach frame stage? And if he says, oh, I reckon we'll be there by September 15th, no worries. I'll go past on September 14th. And if I don't see any frames up, there's a problem. If you go past and he goes, well, it looks like it's going to be there, you start to trust that the person's doing that. So the beauty of, of doing so many sites is that you actually can track different sites against each other. So it takes, it, it typically takes the same amount of time to get from a frame to a lockup. A few disclaimers about the size of the dwellings and the number of units are on size, things like that, but it'll take a certain number of weeks. So once you've gone past the frame stage, I'll just go through it in my calendar and mark off, should be at lockup. So as I, I regularly communicate with my builders, how are things going, Justin? And then I'll wait and let them talk. And they'll tell you how things are going. And then ask a few well poignant questions. Are there any problems I should be aware of? No, everything's going swimmingly. Do you think we'll still be at lockup by whatever day? Yes, excellent. Tick. Nothing for me to do. Therefore, don't do anything. Because there are also other sites where you'll go, Dave, we've got a problem with this site. Oh, what's the problem? Whatever the problem is, I've had from rock to building laneways to problem with neighbours to uh, the last one we had was a uh, last one it was one of the last ones we well, wish it was the last one problems <laughs> every day there's a problem in something as, as it seems it's just it's a problem that's it, sometimes it's easily solved uh, it's supposed to be power lines that were supposed to get taken down they didn't so we power lines so you, you they can't only come up with scaffolding right next to power lines it's just one of these health and safety things which is fair, which is fair <laughs> enough so it delays things We've got a problem, all right, because there's someone I can ring. We've got a problem because of rock. We've got a problem because of this. So then you become this problem solver about 
okay, how do I need to solve the problem? In some cases, is the problem. My solution is to do no, is to do nothing because the builder's already got the problem sorted. He just wants to vent on someone that there's a better problem. Uh huh. Yeah, really. Okay. And you become more of a, a sounding board for someone about. I think this would work. What do you think? And so, it, it sounds it sounds almost too simplistic, but it's actually let other people do their work. Uh, is is a great way. I think is a great way to go. And so, are you the orchestra of all the projects, or have you got? Project managers doing multiple projects uh, for my land subdivisions. I have I have project managers, pointed project managers who do who are the go to people who are dealing with uh, a lot of the, the engineers and, and, the, and the like the big authorities and, and councils for the townhouse. Is to me, you know, I have one staff member who does essentially it, it probably ninety nine percent of it on my behalf. I'd love to. I'm loving to get to the point. I'd love to get to the point where I can actually almost outsource myself out of the equation. Where, it's, but ultimately, a real estate agent will want to speak to me. Dave, we've got an offer at this price. I know we said this much. What do you want to do? So there's some decisions that you have to make. The lender wants to wants you to fill out your financial affairs <laughs> on the on there. They want to speak to you that you know you're about to sign a guarantee for X number of dollars. There's a few things that you can't get out of. But again, with my staff member, I'll let you, you, you run the project. You get in there and you can do as much as you possibly can. And I'm going to tell everyone that you are the go-to person. So don't come to, don't come to me and ask me uh, what colour do we want the brick. I really don't care. I couldn't even tell you what brick w- was. What I, it's, not, it's not what it is. I'm running this as a business, getting it from the business perspective. I'm going to let other people worry about whether a, a brown brick is better value than a red brick or... Whether they should be a you know a dollar a brick or a dollar twenty a brick or whatever is this knowledge? I know other people have that information. I have an opinion on it, but I've worked out that if I want to do this much, I have to let go of a whole bunch of stuff to allow me to do this much. So I'll do less so we can do more. And so is that because you've mapped out a process and you can just give it over to a staff member and yeah, say, yeah. just follow this and check back in with me yeah. every week or yeah, to, to a degree, yeah. There's a, there's a system that works. Uh, the beauty behind property, anyways, is a very slow-moving beast, and so you actually know what the you know you can foresee what the problems are going to be before they actually eventuate, and you already know what your answer is once the once the question gets gets raised. There's very few questions, very few things that will happen which you'll go, oh, well, that's a complete surprise. I know what this is. I may not know the exact question that's going to get asked, but I'm going to have an idea about what it is. And so, I'll give you an example. I've got one happening today. Uh, I had to build a laneway. I had no idea what the laneway cost was going to be, uh, except I've got an estimate in my mind. So the quotes come in, and it's bigger than the estimate. So what do you do? Well, is the estimate a tolerable... It, do I think the number is the right number? Well, yeah, it is, because I understand the process. I trust the process has been the right process. So just to give you some context, I reckon the extra cost in, in, in doing this is about $30,000. So I've stuffed up in my initial estimations by thirty grand. And you'd be going, horrific day, man. And, you know, back in our former lives, we'd be getting absolutely red-carded and kicked and, and hauled across the coals for a 30 grand error that's just... But my investors in this, uh, they're actually going, it's okay, it was a problem, and you solved it, and you solved the problem. So there's 30 grand. Now, the, pro, the, the, the property of the project is it's probably close to a million bucks. So 30 grand in that in that concept is, is not, a, not a big deal anyway. The question comes in, though, and says, extra 30 grand, what can I do? Well, do, do I think if by me going, no, everyone stand aside, let Dave come and save the day, do I reckon I'm going to save that 30 grand? Not a chance. It's going to cost more than 30 grand, being the case. So the only error is my assumption at the start. So it's nothing to do with the builder or the contractor of how they've gone about it. It's my error for not understanding or not making the right assumption or the right allowance for this way back when. For whatever reason that being the case is, do I beat myself over that? Nah, let's move on. Now, if the project was going to lose a million dollars, maybe you'd be a bit more, you know, you pointing fingers or, or pinicky about things. But it's like this, well, let's just keep moving on. We're going to make good money out of this project. Let's keep the project. Let's, let's do it. Let's get to the other side and let's work out what we want to do. Now, it's interesting, of, of all the projects I've ever done, I'm yet to do one where I've never made a mistake, which I think would be maybe a shock to some people. But there's always something that you go... Man, I stuffed that up. I could have done that a lot better. Now, some of the times only for you know five grand or you know five hundred bucks. Even in some cases, there are other times you went, "Wow, that was a doozy. I should not have done that." Like, I'm not sure how you could not make a mistake on a development project. There's just too many moving parts. Yeah. But you know, when you when you're writing out, you know, I think the worst one, if, if you want to go 
biggest errors. Oh, I'll, you know, <laughs> I'll bet you my bit mine's bigger than yours. <laughs> if you like, that's a competition. I'm happy to lose, though. <laughs> I reckon my biggest one is probably uh, uh, oh, it's probably a million dollars. But still smiling. Well, hopefully that's in the context of a, of a multi-million dollar project. Correct. Multi-million dollar Correct. profit. Correct. So we didn't make seven on it, the project. We only made six. Yeah. Now, okay. You go, if you, if you look at it and go, you made a million dollar error? Yep, made a million dollar error. And if I had my time again, I know exactly what I would do to solve that million dollar error. And so when the exact circumstances re- re- replicate themselves, I will not make that million dollar error, I can guarantee you. But at the time... I so said, I'll make a different million dollar error next time. No, so when it happens again, I'll go, I won't make that million dollar error again. But you sort of ask this question, are you happy to make million dollar mistakes making seven million dollar profits? I should say, I didn't get all the seven million dollars either, the six million dollars that get spread amongst a number of people. I wish I did, I should, but there. But from a project perspective, can that, you know, if you're going to make a million dollar error anytime, when there's a seven million dollar profit in there, it's probably the best time to make it. <laughs> Rather than when there's a twenty grand profit to make it, when you get left scratched your head, going, "Man, that didn't work out as planned." Yeah, it's definitely it's a better time to do it <laughs> <laughs> if there's a good, if there's a good time to do it. So you've mentioned investors. So given the, your profile, I describe it as I presume that you probably have people knocking on your door these days wanting to invest. Or yes or no. Yeah. I've kept a fairly low profile. Yeah. Uh, one of the, I've kept a fairly low profile. Uh, one of the things I've wrestled with is how much do I actually want to do because property by itself is a, is a slow-moving beast. And I've set it up, set my business up in such a way that I've got a lot of people doing stuff. So then you, when you've done all that, you come back and you go, right, now what am I supposed to do? So you wrestle with this. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take on a million investors. I'm going to go crazy. We're going to change the world. I'm going to, I'm going to make all this work for myself. Hang on. Why am I making all this work for myself? Let's come back to why it is that you're doing all this in the, in the first instance. So I'm really clear that I'm trying to do it so I'm not doing all this work for myself. So for me, I'm happy to take on an investor, but it's got to be on my terms, which some people struggle with because it sounds very... Egocentric and very much that, uh, like, like you know, I'm in charge, or it's, you know, it's and it's not the case at all. But I'm clear for for all the deals ever done, going way back when with investors, the, the the deal has to be right for investors because if you get the right property at the right price, and you put the wrong person in, you've got a whole bunch of problems. It can you made a two dimensional problem three dimensional, which means that if it goes wrong, it can go you know like famously wrong just by having the wrong investor in there and I, I was on my first ever dealing I did with investors and I put one wrong investor into a syndicate that I set up and it left me with a sour taste with in, investors for probably five or six years I didn't do another deal with investors for five or six years just you know, I, had a, I had a particular guy that I, I doubled his money in, in probably two years and where he was at that stage in his, his life he was everything was turning the pot around him and so rather than, and I can't remember what he invested, but I gave him a check for double that two years later. And rather than uh, rather than him saying, oh, thanks, or any sort of gratitude, he had a go at me for, oh, how dare you sell the investment? This is the only thing that's going well for me. And I went, I guess you're never going to please some people. So you went, it's got to be a really good fit for the investor. So you're on the, on the right on the right wavelength. So the next question that then comes to me is, so what is the right <laughs> the right investor? So I'm looking for my investors uh, to be passive. I know what I'm doing. I'm actually, I think I'm quite good at what I do. So let me do what it is that I do. Don't ring me every Monday and go, How, how's it going? Well, it's a one-week advance this last Monday <laughs> is, is the answer. Just let it let it do its thing. It, it, it's there. It's a tw- if it's a 12-month process, it, it'll be a 12-month process. You can ring me every single day if you want, but the process will still be a 12-month process. But you're not going to ring me every day because you last about seven days. I'm going to tell you to, to get back off is, is, is what's going to be the case. So I understand that people are... Uh, antsy about it, and they're and, and they and they're wanting to know, but you you to trust the process about it is what it is, and it's not that's not for you, then then that's okay as well. And so, and so, how do you manage that? Do you just lay down some ground rules about I'll get in touch with you monthly, or yeah, I, I think there's a, there's a few things, that, and it comes. You can put whatever contract you like in place. When you, like my experience, whenever you reach for the top drawer of the filing cabinet for the contracts, you you have bigger troubles then with a the relationship rather than what does the contract actually say so you can write into a contract but I'm actually a bit of a handshake sort of guy the commitment I give a person and I give you up front is that you know, I'm, my theory in business is you, is you say what you do and you do what you say 
So my commitment to you, you were an investor in one of my projects, as I would say to you, this is what I say to you, all my, all my investors, is th- this project has my attention. Uh, I structure my remuneration in such a way that I'm, I'm tied to the profitability of the project, uh, not only from my remuneration, but also my pride and just my personality. That's that's how I am. It's going to have my, my best endeavours. Uh, I'll give you a feasibility of what we're working towards. The only guarantee I'll give you is that I know the feasibility won't be right. <laughs> in, 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 as a passage of time goes on, that's the one number that won't be. If I say it's going to make a million dollar profit, it'll either be higher than a million or less than a million. It won't be exactly a million, typically. I guess theoretically it could be, but not, it's not my experience to date. What I'll tell you is it has my best endeavours, and if there's a problem, I'll do, I'll do one of two things. The first thing I'll do is I'll tell you there's a problem. So I ring you up and I go, Justin, we've got a problem. It's a, I'll insert problem. The next thing I'll do is I'll go and sort the problem out. That's what I'll do. And if any time that's not good enough, then you probably shouldn't be an investor because you should go to somewhere else. I don't know whoever else is out there who does this type of stuff, but if you can get better, you should go somewhere else. If you can get better than what is it you actually well, can deliver you, if you think you deserve better or there's out there in the marketplace, by all means, go and get that. Okay, and so is that... Other people putting in the vast bulk of funds? Uh, oh. <laughs> I've morphed this. I mean, you're going to ask me this question too. There's no one size fits all. That's the first thing. And so typically these conversations come up over, over, uh, over uh, a whole variety of topics. Typically, every investor situation is different, and so you, you've got to be mindful of the fact that what you're trying to do is to solve a person's problem and, and solve my problem. So I listen to what the investor actually wants. So in, in a townhouse development, for example, we might set up a, a specific company that goes and does that, and then we might issue shares, and each investor gets shares in proportion with how much capital they put in. So in the past, I've also been an investor in that project. I'll also be a project manager for it and take a project management fee uh, for doing that. But I'm also in there as well as two hats. One's the investor hat, one's a, one's a project manager hat. For some of the larger transactions, I will take the investor and then we'll put the property, put the property in Mr. Investor's name and I'll just project manage to Mr. Investor and structure my remuneration or my fee in accordance with what it is that I'm going to deliver as the case so you look at some and it comes back to I guess my definition of what is development I'm trying to make money without doing the physical you know, work cutting up the land and so forth so I would look at a property and I ask myself the question how can I make an earn out of this in, in whatever form that takes so even right now I'm looking at my model going right now it works under a certain set of circumstances and I'm asking myself the question but what would happen if and I start changing things in that mix what would my model look like and so i'm conscious for example that if i take if i just do a, a, a townhouse development with you and i put property in your name and i charge you a fee for doing that uh, is there enough profit in the deal for there to be two snouts in the trough and make it attractive for both and so you say that you know, when the transactions are a certain size you say yes there are but the transactions come below a certain size then no they may not be and so they come back to the discussion we had earlier about where it is that you actually go looking for transactions. The problem is if I was to start with a, new, a first-time investor and their affordability was out in the outer suburbs, the deal may not have enough profit in there for two people to get paid. So you start looking at how can you, and I don't necessarily have a solution to that one right now, but I'm just giving you an illustration of I spend time looking at things, how do they change when they're, when they're constant, because the only constant is change. So it's a case of being forewarned about, forearmed about what the change could potentially be. So have an idea about when it comes up and go, ah, oh, this is what it looks like. So when my investors talk to me and say, what's your model? I go, this is the model right now. When it changes, I'll let you know it needs to change. For, for, that could be me changing, it could be the market changing things for you. So we've changed things for a number of investors I've worked with over the, over the time, with, even with their affairs just in mind about, would you rather have... 100% interest in one pro- property or would you rather have 50% interest in two projects? And there's a different risk-reward analysis that goes on. Whereas from their perspective, they came to the conclusion of they would rather be in multiple projects because we've, we've sort of, we're spreading the risk across projects. The time frames are getting uh, diluted, if you like. It's not all on 
you know, I have to finish by Christmas, otherwise we don't eat Christmas lunch. There's a few things like that that, that, that that go on as we work toward. So I've tried to work with people. I'm sure I'm not allowed to use the word financial plan or anything like that with laws and getting sued by someone. But you sort of, you, I take the role on really seriously that, you know, it's, it's when a person says, here is my hard-earned savings, that they're saying, well, you, there's a responsibility that comes alongside that. And so with those models... What's your thoughts in terms of handling a drop in the market or a change in the market that affects prices for the worse? So things start to go downwards because that hasn't happened for a, a while. Oh, it has actually. I'll challenge you. I think it has happened. There are certain things that have, that have, that have happened that, that, that the ebbs and flows through, through certain markets. As I say, the only constant is change. What I've, what I've found is if you're developing townhouses, and let's talk about that, for the, for the moment. If you're developing from one townhouse to, let's say, three townhouses, you have a degree of leverageability from one to three. And whatever happens in the, in the marketplace, uh, because of the profits that you're making on total cost, you'll find that your worst-case scenario it, it will be you'll, you'll make just a little bit of money or you'll broke even. It'll, I find is always the case. If you're going from one house to 100 houses, let's call it an apartment building, you have a different set of risks. If you go from one house where you can knock down one house and build one super house, you, you don't have the leverageability. So I find you've got it more extreme, you've got more chance of being at risk to market if you don't leverage to the right degree. So leverage of, not only leverage of money, which we're here, we're talking leverage of number of dwellings, leverage of number of dwellings from one to say three, four, five, I'd probably say between three to six. If you manage the rest of the, your business model correctly, you'll find that you'll be okay. You may not make a killing, but you'll be all right. You won't lose money financially, it's been my experience, mathematically. Now, of course, what do you do if there's a complete... Uh, blows up and the market drops 30% and, you know, and so the theorists go, oh, you just buy more. I'm, I'm yet to see a theorist do anything, quite frankly, but and it's a real, you know, a real however minuscule that, that, that looks like. So we build it in into a model. So if, I, uh, if I'm building three townhouses, uh, so I keep, try and keep an eye on what is the market doing. So you've, you, you don't just wake up one day and go, oh, geez, the market just tanked by 30%. You generally, you will, you'll know that before you read about it in the paper. So I will talk to people on the ground. You talk to mortgage brokers, you go to auctions on a Saturday, you talk to real estate agents, find out what is the vibe in the marketplace. So typically in the marketplace, what will happen is the market's on the nose. The first people to know that the market just dropped, the buyers. They're, they're the ones who determine it. So if you've got, you've got a price for a million dollars, you find that property's only, they're only getting to 900000 How do you know that? Go to some auctions, track some properties, you'll find it out real quickly. In the case. Then the agents find it out, and then you'll find that the agents don't tell the vendors because they told them they're going to get 1.1 for that million dollar house, and they don't want to be the bearer of bad news, or they're untrained to be the bearer of bad news, so they let, they let the property go through to an auction situation, or a sell-by-set date, or whatever their methodology of selling, and it passes in, or it doesn't sell. And then the, then the vendors now realise that the property's not worth, the market's changed what they thought it was, was, was going to be. So... How does that protect me and my clients and my investors and that being the case? So first of all, we, we, we go into that, we might make a decision about we want to sell one of these things off the plan. So if you want to sell off the plan, you can lock in the sale price, albeit you still have settlement risk for the, for the purchaser completing the, tr- the transaction. Assuming you don't want to sell off the plan because you want to go all the way and sell them at the end, you can still drop the price to meet the market. Once you've got a completed product, the product will sell at a price. It's a case of that, what price will it sell? If you're building three houses, you don't have to sell all three houses for the via discount sale. So you might, because of bank lending ratios, and I'm sure you would have covered it off in other other podcasts that's there, you're you're not a, you typically are not going to be at 120% cost is your where your loans are. So you've got three dwellings, you may sell one dwelling for a knockdown price. You reduce the bank's exposure, you reduce your overall debt level, you might rent the other two out if you can't sell them and, and cover cash flow, and you're waiting for time in the market. There's a saying I've got in this game is that you're trying to win a game and you'll win the game provided you stay in the game. But the moment you get kicked out of the game, you have zero percent chance of winning the game. Now, you may not win the game if you're still in the game, but you're a chance of winning the game in the game. And sort of and in the Dumb and Dumber movie, it's like, well, I like those arts. <laughs> One in a million. The good arts. <laughs> still some odds. That's it. Um, you should be a motivational sports team coach. <laughs> those kind of analogies. 
I'll tell my sons under nine so I can sign them, they'll be wrapped. <laughs> All right, so where do you see Dave Bradley taking his business then? If the plan is to kind of reduce your time. So I, 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 where do I see myself taking the business? Okay, so there is the first half of my chat with Dave Bradley. I hope you enjoyed it. Tune in to the next episode to hear the second half where we discuss whether to hold on to stock, key questions to ask yourself about growing your business, and Dave's top tip for developers who are keen on taking their business to the next level. I thought Dave shared some great gems of wisdom during the conversation, including one, let people get on with their specialized roles. Don't try and micromanage people along the way. Hire the best people you can, be clear on your expectations, and then let them get on with doing their jobs. Check in along the way to make sure they're on track, but otherwise, allow the experts to do their thing. Two, think about how you want to scale your business. Dave talked about working out whether you want to do more projects, or bigger projects, or maybe both. Do you want to move closer to the city, or do you want to stay in one area or a couple of known areas? These are questions you need to answer if you want to grow your business. Three, if you take on investors, be clear about how you will manage the relationship. Finding investors is one thing. Finding the right investors is another thing altogether. Dave talked about considering what problem you're solving for an investor and figuring out how you can promote that to them. Then you need to think about how you are going to manage that relationship because you're going to be in contact with them for potentially a couple of years. And it could be very uncomfortable if things get off track. Remember Dave said one poor relationship with an investor put him off having investors for about five or six years. So be selective about who you partner up with. Okay, so that's it for part one of the Dave Bradley interview. Make sure to tune in for part two and find out how many rental properties Dave now owns. You can find out more about Dave at his website, which is bradleypropertygroup.com.au. As always, head over to the Property Developer Podcast website for past episodes. Catch up with me on Instagram at Property Developer Podcast and see my Property Developer porn pics and development photos. And you can also find me on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks again for listening in. And until next time, may all your developments be a success. You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.